Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a British author and screenwriter for film and video games. Born in London, he began his career as a writer for the games magazine Commodore User, then joined the team that founded PC Gamer, of which he later became editor-in-chief. In 2010, my guest found success in Hollywood as the writer of The Book of Eli, a post-apocalyptic neo-Western film starring Denzel Washington. In 2013, he co-wrote After Earth with the director M. Night Shyamalan, then co-wrote the story for Star Wars Rogue One. My guest has also contributed writing to blockbuster video games, including Duke Nukem Forever, Prey, Gears of War and The Walking Dead, for which he won a BAFTA. Since becoming a US citizen, he now resides in California with his family. Welcome, Gary Witter. Hello, thanks for having me. So, Gary, you've, you've written some uh, very high-profile high movies that have actually been made, something that's not always given for screenwriters in Hollywood, where, where people often say it's a miracle that anything gets, uh, gets put on the screen. Has that success sort of sated your appetite or made you hungrier to write more? Um, I don't know if it's ever really... Uh, sated and I, I I often have very mixed feelings about 
my success. On the one hand, yeah, I've had I've had three films made, which is three more than most people that you know aspire to do this for a living. So I'm I'm grateful for 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 all of them and for everything that I've <laughs> had published or produced over the years. At the same time, I've been a screenwriter now for. Um, Going on 20 years, and you think about it, like three movies, my primary job is writing film and television. I've worked on hundreds of projects over the years. Three of those movies have actually seen the light of day, which when you think about it is, is not much of a, uh, a rate of return, but that's, it, that, you know, that's not uncommon in this business. It's almost impossible to get anything made and, and even more almost impossible than that for it to be good or for it to bear any you know, relation to what you originally set out to do. It's a tough business. Mm, yes, indeed. I mean, you, you mentioned there that your your primary job is a as a screenwriter. You know, I think I, I know lots of screenwriters, and not all of them work full time just on, on that. You know, so what does a typical day look like for you? Are you are you able to just fully focus on writing, or do you have to do other other bits and pieces? I'm not really sure if I have um, a typical day, and that's kind of what I like about it. One, it's I, I love working for myself. You know, I I'll never have to sit in another performance review. Uh, my entire life. I'll never had an, another <laughs> office job. I did that. And, you know, now I, I enjoy being my own boss and I get to work from home. I have a little home office um, in my house here. You know, I get to wear sweatpants to work every day. Um, and uh, I, I keep my own hours and I, I basically, you know, write when I when I feel like it. If I'm on a deadline or something, I do have to discipline myself somewhat. But when I'm just, you know, writing on noodling away on my own projects, I, I tend to just write I'm not one of those people that feels like I have to write every day. Like if I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling it. But it usually <laughs> blows very hot and cold. Either I'm like banging my head against the screen going, have an idea, you idiot. And like, I can't think of anything good. Or I get completely obsessed with an idea and I'm just writing all the time. And it's like a fever <laughs> dream. I mean, you're a writer yourself. You know what it's like. It's, you know, it's, it's it, there's, to me, there's never like a nice medium in the middle. It's always like, oh my God, I can't write or you're, or you're completely obsessed with this thing and you can't stop writing. Yeah, I saw you tweeting, uh, there was a little while ago, but uh, you know, I guess on that theme, you were tweeting about a script idea you'd had and you were saying how unusual the idea felt and exciting it was and you were almost nervous to send it out to see what might happen. It, what is the process when when that script leaves your hands? What what must happen to make it all work and come home? Well, we're about to find out with that project that uh, you just talked about, which I am really excited about. It's something that I wrote before the writer strike and um, was very excited to get it out into the world. Felt very pregnant with it. Wanted to show it to the world and, and try and get it um, set up and produced. And then, of course, the writer strike happened, and you know we had to put it on on ice for the better part of six months. But now that Hollywood's kind of like coming back again, you know, where hopefully the actors will be back again soon, the writers um, are back, we're, we're going to find out what the market is like. And right now, nobody seems to really know. The strike is over, um, but the underlying problems that caused the strike um, are still very much there, right? Everyone's kind of forgotten how to make money in this business. Yeah. It's like the streaming thing hasn't worked out for a lot of, a lot of streamers, and uh, there's no transparency, and... Nobody seems to quite know what they want anymore. Mm. Everything's run by the algorithm, and it's just a it's just a weird time to be in the in the in the creation business, trying trying to create original stuff. Um, it's it's very strange, and so the and the piece I've written is very different from me, and kind of a kind of an odd piece. And so we'll find out. Well, I have a, an amazing producer attached, and um, we're looking for a lead actor right now. Yeah. These days, it's all in Hollywood. It's all about packaging. You don't want to just have a script. You want to say like, here's the whole thing, like. Here's the script. Here's the Bible for the whole show. Here's what like three seasons of the show would look like. Here's who's producing it. Here's who, here's who's going to run it. Here's who's going to be in it. They want to, you know, you, you want to package it as much as possible so that a potential buyer can get a really good idea of like what the finished product 
is going to look like and a good sense of its of its viability like if you have really you know well-known actors and directors and producers attached or if it's coming from a well-known writer um all of that helps them get to yes which is a, a very often a very difficult thing to do yeah i mean that just seems like so much work isn't it to do something that you don't know if it's going to come to anything you know how do you are you, are you very involved in that approaching actors and going Hey, look, do you want to read my thing? And would can I say that you do it if if it becomes a thing? Yeah, I mean, on the TV side, more so. Yeah, and if you're also if you know you're you're producing as well as writing, which is something I'm trying to uh, get into more. I've, at least I've been doing this for a long time now. One of the things I discovered is that as a screenwriter in film, you are very often kind of relegated to the kids' table, and you know you don't necessarily have a lot of or if any real kind of creative authority or a say in you know casting or production and things like that i often equate my job in film as like a party planner like i plan the amazing party that everyone else is going to have by writing the scripts for the movie uh but then everyone else goes off and has the party and forgets about you know me like i'm very you know not, I'm, not, I'm not always on set uh, my opinion's not always you know needed or or wanted or asked for like once the script is done but in television you're much, it's much more of a holistic process for the writer, you are involved in casting. You are, you know, you're on set every day. You do have a lot more uh, of a kind of a, of a footprint or, or or a thumbprint, I should say, on the on the finished product. So for that reason, television's become more attractive to me, and I'm also trying to attach myself as a producer to the films that I write now, so that yeah. um, you know you're you're just able to kind of ride the train all the way to the to the end of the station and 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 be, and be there for the entire process, not just the writing part. You want to be there for like all the fun parts. You mentioned there that you know the the rice strike and how the constant shifts that are occurring in your industry, uh, which I think you know even if for people who don't work in that industry you can see see what those shifts are and how they might affect things. I guess on the flip side, what are the what are the constants? What are the things that never change, no matter what's happening in the world? What's yeah? What what are the elements that go into writing a TV or film script that you think will remain resolute through all of this? I mean, in terms of the business, I think you know screenwriters in film will always be considered somewhat lowly on the on the creative totem pole which is weird right they, they, it's funny Hollywood gets very romantic around like the time of the Oscars and they talk about oh it all starts on the printed page and you know we, we the actors and directors can't do anything until there's a script but when the rubber hits the road screenwriters are often treated uh, very poorly in Hollywood at least on the film side again on television it's a, it's a it's a somewhat different equation and then the other uh constant i think which is always if anything is like even more of a thing now than it used to be is hollywood's always been i think not always but certainly in the last 30 or 40 years has been somewhat of a reactionary business in the sense that there's very little original stuff getting made anymore generally now if you look you'll look at most of the stuff that gets made whether it be marvel or star wars or harry potter or some adaptation or, or sequel or reboot is that hollywood these days is they're very risk averse they don't you know it takes a lot of money to make a movie and you know sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars and these people don't like to lose money they want to make money uh, so there's often a financial imperative to make things rather than a creative imperative. And one of the things that's very attractive is, oh, it's based on a thing you already know. Like we know people are going to show up because it's based on a hit show or a hit book <laughs> or it's um, you know, a sequel to something that people already liked. It's getting increasingly difficult to get um, original material through the system. Um, you know, Chris Nolan is like probably one of the only filmmakers left that can make, you know, big original films because he's the reason to go right christopher oh yeah christopher nolan movie those are always always really good like he becomes the the marketing angle and so you're one of a very very small group of filmmakers you know that can do whatever they want but generally 
yeah, if you look at like 80% of what's in theaters these days, it's something you've heard of already because, you know, it was based on something else. So for me, whose main, you know, love is kind of writing original uh, genre material, original science fiction and fantasy, it's a, it's a tough business. I've had much more success getting those stories in front of an audience in other ways, uh, as books, as graphic novels, as, 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 as audio uh, projects. And then maybe those things get adapted into movies or TV shows down the, down the line. But 80% of my work, like for the last 20 years, has always been kind of playing in other people's sandboxes on things that were already established. Like, you know, obviously it was a privilege um, to work in the Star Wars universe for five years as I did, but that was someone else's universe, right? You've, it's, it's kind of like being at someone else's how like you know when you were a kid you go over someone else's house to play with their star wars figures but you had to be respectful because they weren't your toys they were someone else's <laughs> that's kind of the approach when i'm when i'm writing like these aren't my toys they belong to someone else so i have to be respectful but if they're my toys i can do whatever i want with them the problem is no one's heard of my toys and i'm torturing this analogy terribly no it's still working it's holding up it's it's hard i um i you know i i, I kind of pay the bills doing the doing the sandbox work you know play again like working on adaptations and 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 things that you've heard of um you know in other in other mediums but i my my main love i mean i broke in with an original as you mentioned earlier the book of eli was an original film it's kind of a miracle that that got made at the level that it did with you know oscar-winning you know talent because it was a strange original film that um it was violent and it was religious and no one's ever going to make this it was kind of a miracle that they that they did but that's i remember telling myself at the time like that you played your joker early in your career like that's the one you get and so far, that's been true. You know, I'm After Earth was an original, but it was someone else's idea. I was brought in to help develop it. And Star Wars is, of course, Star Wars. Again, I would never complain about working on Star Wars. It's it, it was amazing. But like my first love will always be trying to push original material through the system. But I really created like a rod for my own back there because it's the hardest thing to do. <laughs> and oftentimes, yeah, right. when I, and now these days, I'll, I'll find that if there's a story, I've gotten very good at like anticipating all the reasons why studio executives or producers will say no like this isn't marketable we're not going to make money doing this it's not commercial enough uh and so rather than develop anything that might be a bit weird or, or wacky or not easily kind of uh, stuck in one you know box or another i would rather develop that as something else i'd rather write a novel i'd rather write a comic or something that might be a little bit easier to realize and then maybe if that becomes successful maybe someone will come around and want to make the movie now these days uh trying to get original stuff made it's just it's very very hard yeah right yeah, I mean, we did the moment we're talking, I guess the big movie at the moment is Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, of course was a, a hit, uh, David Grand non-fiction book. And you mentioned Christopher Nolan, even his most recent film Oppenheimer was based on a book, wasn't it, on a biography of Oppenheimer. So, yeah, it seems... <laughs> yeah, there's there's usually something underlying, but, you know, I mean, there are, there are obviously, but also you just mentioned, I mean, you mentioned like two very rarefied filmmakers it really, that that's the category right spielberg scorsese nolan these these are the people that can usually get movies they, they wouldn't have mattered if killers of the flower moon or oppenheimer was based on a book or not they still would have they still would have got those movies made sure uh, because they are who they are but i mean you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of filmmakers that are able to do that for the rest of us it's a, a constant struggle very interesting right gary we better come to the premise of the podcast and talk about some video games so i've asked you to uh, pick the five games you'd like to put on your idealized fictional fictional video game console you pick five corkers um do you want to tell us about your your first game what is it and why do you love it so i picked i mean i imagine you've had this come up many times on i'd be amazed if you haven't heard this over and over but i picked tetris <laughs>
Well, you know what's interesting was I thought a lot about the premise of the question. It was like, why is the question phrased this way? It's not as simple as like, what are your all-time five favorite games? It's almost like more of a practice. It was almost like a Desert Island Discs thing, right? Like if I'm stuck on a Desert Island with a game console that only has these five games on it, and these are the only five games I'm going to get to play for the rest of my life, what do I want them to be? Like, that's kind of how I approach the question. And for that reason, I picked Tetris because I think it is the most endlessly replayable game ever made. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I think that makes it genius. Like, I I, I don't know, did, did people who like Tetris, has anyone ever got bored playing? Uh, I'm, I'm done with Tetris. Like, I've played enough Tetris in my life. It's probably the game that I've bought the most times. I remember in 1989 buying the original Game Boy in the UK that had the Tetris cartridge uh, it came with it came bundled with it. That's really what I, th I think was responsible historically for Tetris blowing up was the fact that it was bundled with every Game Boy. Like everybody got to play Tetris and see what an amazing game it was. I think it was a relatively obscure title prior to that point. But I, I, I have bought it probably thirty or forty times since, and my, I, I, I never took that like my Game Boy was basically a Tetris machine. I never took that cartridge out. Yes, uh, that's the only thing I ever especially fused into the Game Boy at this point. I still have it. And I remember the first time ever playing with like the 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 link cable that could connect to uh, Game Boys together, and like you know, I would I would clear lines and send them over as trash to the other player. I just, that was a revelatory concept back in 1989 when we first started doing. Of course, we're still doing it now. You know, Tetris Effect connected. Uh, I think it's the most recent version. I love that version. To me, it's my favorite version of Tetris. I was playing it in VR the other day. It'll just never, ever, ever go away. And I think there are only a handful. I'm struggling to think of even any other game concepts that are like are just so timeless and and so endlessly replayable. Yes. I mean, I did get to that point, and it's where the name, the, the, the Tetris effect is this thing where you basically kind of see the shapes in your head, right? Like, I can, I don't even need a game console yes. to play Tetris anymore. Like, my brain can just generate, auto-generate, like, the random shapes at this point, and I'll fit them together. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing, and I think, like, if you said to me I can only play one game, for the rest of my life, like you better pick something you're never going to get bored with. Like Tetris is the game that I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's been what thirty something, thirty years. Minutes, yeah. Um, and I'm still, I'm still not bored of it. And I think it'll probably be another thirty at least. It's amazing. Tetris was uncovered so early into the medium's life, wasn't it? Because, like you say, yeah, it just feels like this perfect artifact that was excavated and just whole and is complete, and there's no fat on it, and. Yeah, incredible, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you, you use the word perfect, and I think it's, it's often hard to, I think, to use the word perfect in a game, but like as a, as a basic concept, it's obviously been iterated on many times, but the basic concepts of those seven interlocking shapes and clearing the lines, like, it's perfect. There's nothing, it's a perfect... Unimprovable, yeah. It's unimprovable, and you've seen, like, they've tried to, like, add bells and whistles to it, but that's all you can really do. Even Tetris Effect Connected, the most recent version, which is, like, the most bells and whistles, it's still fundamentally the same game. People have come up, I mean, you also look at, like, Tetris 99 on the Switch, Battle Royale Tetris, like, there's so many different ways you can add a different flavor to it, but just as a, as a basic game design concept... It's fascinating. Obviously, it also has a fascinating, fascinating origin story of like how it was made and how it was discovered and, you know, how it, it kind of went on to become this global sensation. It's actually the only time ever that I've been starstruck in this business was, was when I met Alexei Pachitnov. I was at, Amazing. I remember I was at E3 many years ago at the Microsoft booth. And you remember Alexei worked for Microsoft for, for a number yeah. of years as a game designer there. And I was standing there with someone from Microsoft. They said, oh, by the way, Gary, have you met Alexei? And he's like kind of turned around and I realized who it was. And I was like, 
completely flummoxed. I didn't know what to say to the guy other than just like, oh my God, like Tetris. What number, like, I can't believe this. Number, you, know, you, you become that guy. Like, I just don't know. What a, what a game. That's just amazing. And he's just, Alexi's just this, I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's just this really nice, like avuncular, he, he kind of looks like like Santa. Like he's a big, you know, rotund guy with a beard and oh, he, he goes, ho, ho, ho. He has this kind of like very uh, jocular laugh. He's just the, the, the nicest guy. And it's like, I've been, I've worked in the games business for decades, and I've met pretty much everybody, but meeting Alexei Pachitnov, the creator of Tetris, is one of the only times, if not if not the only time, that I've ever been truly starstruck, because he made a game, I truly believe this, we'll still be playing Tetris 100, 200 years from yeah. now. I, I think it'll, it's it, it's one of those games that will last forever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Right, Gary, tell me, so uh, listeners can tell that uh, even though you live in California, you're not from California. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in the East End of London. I was born in, um, I was born literally within the sound of Bow Bells in Bethnal Green. So I'm a proper Cockney. Oh, right. You wouldn't know that now to talk to me. <laughs> when, when, I, when I go back home, I, I do I do get a bit of the old Cockney <laughs> does come back. Uh, and I, I start, start sad a bit like uh, Danny Danny Dwyer. No, Danny Dyer. I'm getting mixed up with Danny O'Dwyer, aren't I? What a muppet. Um I'm actually going back to London next week for the, my first time in years. And when I go back home, my accent kind of reasserts itself. You're going to start driving some cabs for a bit. Right. Well, my dad, actually, my dad was a black a black cab driver for many years. I remember really? when he was doing the knowledge. I mean, I mean yeah, I, he, honestly, I, I have a proper working class Cockney background. I was raised in uh, in Hackney um, in East London. And yeah, it's it, it uh, I, I get very nostalgic for it sometimes. I'm looking, I haven't been back in years. I'm looking forward to to going back but yeah my i struggle with my accent a, a, a lot in the sense that i've lived here now for longer in america than i've lived in the uk and sometimes people struggle to place my accent because it's gone a bit transatlantic it's a little bit kind of mm. neither one thing nor the other and i kind of hate that like i want to stay i'll always be i'm an american citizen now but i'll always be a you know, british person first and foremost is where i was born and raised that's all my kind of roots and heritage are there i'm still very British in, in in many kind of stereotypical ways, even though I've lived here for you know twenty five years or more. But uh, no working class back working class background. My dad drove a cab and delivered newspapers for a living, and I just loved video games. I grew up playing. Uh, I had a Spectrum and a Commodore sixty four, and that's that was the start of my journey. Was that your first first uh, system then the the Spectrum? I think I had an Atari twenty six hundred first. Right, yeah. Um, and as I often tell Americans, and as uh, you know, uh, in the UK. In the 80s and 90s, we had a, we had a very different path through those early systems, where it was very much more console based in the in the US, with you know the, the Sega and Nintendo systems. Um, in as an 80s kid in the UK, it was all about the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum, and or if you were unlucky, the Amstrad. Or the poor kid, one the one poor kid at school that had the Amstrad always had a tough time. But I had a, I had a, I had a Spectrum and a Commodore 64. There is still nothing to this day that brings back my sense of childhood and memory and my like formative years as a as a as a young game enthusiast and hearing the the music of the uh, anything from the Commodore 64 Sid chip <laughs> like it just has such a distinctive sound anything by Rob Hubbard or Martin Galway I have a massive playlist on my phone of like hundreds of love like old Commodore 64 Sid tunes and it, it really whenever I'm feeling like melancholy and nostalgic or I want to kind of like go back to uh, like retreat into my childhood or whatever that that Commodore 64 um, music gets me gets me every time lovely yeah and then I mean you were quite a, a hustler even as a teenager you know I read that you you saved up on your paper round to buy your was it your Amiga that you did that with yeah I started I started very early so um around 88 which was the around the time you'll remember of the kind of the 8-bit to 16-bit transition, right? The Spectrum and the Commodore 64 were kind of going away. They stuck around for some years afterwards, but like at that time, the, the Atari ST and the Amiga 
were were coming in and it was the the, the beginning of the 16-bit generation and i desperately wanted a 16-bit computer if you remember the the graphical upgrade from 8 to 16-bit was amazing i looked at would look at pictures of like defender of the crown on the amiga in these game mags oh my god i've got to have it and it's funny i talk a lot of, when i when i talk about my career i talk about a lot a lot about luck and like those little weird little you know um chaos effects things that can change the course of your entire life and i had enough money this is a good example of one of them i had just enough money saved up to buy an atari st which isn't really what i wanted but like i really wanted the amiga but the amiga was a bit more expensive yeah how much more was it do you remember there was it wasn't a huge it was either the i i had a choice for either the atari 520 st or the amiga 500 um and i don't remember at the time i think it was like maybe a hundred maybe the amiga was like it was like 399 for the ST and maybe 449 or 499 for the Amiga. There was a little bit of a price difference. I could, get, I could get the ST right now or I could wait a little bit longer and get the Amiga. And so I waited a little bit longer and get and, and got the Amiga. And I was, I was glad of that simply because, you know, I think it did turn out to be the better machine, better games, slightly more powerful. But what happened was I, I desperately wanted to be, I wanted a job in games. I, I thought about making games at first and I again I grew up in the 80s when you know a lot of the big games were made why just one person in their in their bedroom right um I thought well I could do that but I don't have anything like a analytical or uh, process oriented brain I, 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 I bought a book on on programming and I was like I can't do this I just I, I can't understand any of it uh, I'm very very uh I'm left-handed right brain oriented which I guess it, it, like that's you know the right side is the more creative side and the left side's the more analytical side so I'm very right brain I'm very good with imaginative concepts and abstract things like that i'm good with words obviously uh but like, i can't i still can't do basic arithmetic like i need a calculator to do basic arithmetic uh so my brain's just not set up to to be a, i could never be a programmer or a mathematician or a scientist or anything like that and so i knew that wasn't going to work but i used to love reading the game magazines back when they were still a thing and i grew up reading crash and zap 64 and i wanted to be one of those guys and i thought i could review games and so i wrote some reviews some 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 kind of mock dummy reviews and sent them out to various magazines and i got an interview at commodore user magazine and i remember them not being particularly i was like a spotty 15 year old kid i was still in school at the time wow and i remember them not being particularly impressed they were like whatever another kid wants a job being a games reviewer you know take a number uh but i happened to mention that i had an amiga and they were like wait you have an amiga i was like yeah i just because it had just come out and i had saved up long enough and i got one and they were like, oh my God, like we have a bunch of Amiga games sitting around here that need reviewing. Like none of our freelancers have one yet. And so they gave me a bunch of games to review just because they needed freelancers who had Amigas. And that was it. It was just the fact that I had the computer. And I was so excited. I remember calling up my mum uh, from the train station on the way home going, oh, I'm going to be a games reviewer. And it was because if I'd have bought that ST, who knows what I'd be doing for a living. Now, it's, it's weird to think about it. You know, there's the whole kind of sliding doors uh, of it all. But yeah, part, that was my first lucky break was because I, I made the right choice with the with with the 16-bit computer that's what got me in the door as a it was my first job uh, writing professionally about games at 15 years old incredible it's one of those times where i mean it's quite impressive to like delay the gratification as a 15 year old of going no i'm gonna wait until i've got the extra 50 quid to get the amiga so I, and i still i still i'm 51 now and i still don't do good delayed gratification very well but i'm glad <laughs> i did it in that case yeah all right gary let's come to your second game then so this is from 2013 a very long-running successful game tell us about this one grand theft auto 5 
I, I, so with GTA, I often, and I can say this about Mass Effect and uh, many other, World of Warcraft, which I played for many years. I had a big World of Warcraft addiction at one point. Um, I often think about my favorite games, the ones that I enjoy playing the most, not as games that I pick up and play, but places that I go. And I think of Los Santos as a place that I go. And I remember many, men. it's obviously been re-released and remastered so many times now. I always go back and I just recently did another replay of it, just playing through the story mode. And many of my favorite play sessions in GTA V had nothing to do with the main quest, had nothing even to do with the side quests. I would just wander around the city and like do yoga and play tennis and play golf and go, oh, what's over here? And this is endlessly discoverable. There's always something new. I'm sure there's like still a hundred things in Los Santos that I'd be like, oh my God, I'd be amazed to discover that that was there. And I just like wandering around and being in these virtual places. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited about the, I think the thing will be the long term, but the ultimate potential of VR and you know these you know, the I hate using the term metaverse because it's been made very unfashionable but the but the idea of places that you go to where you can create your own experiences for for a while a couple of years ago I was involved in one of the big GTA unofficial role playing servers where people do really go there and they live essentially other lives and you become a character really? in Los Santos uh. and you can be a criminal or a cop or you can start a business you can be whatever you want to be and everyone you meet you know will talk to you in character and it's like this amazing it's like the most amazing experience in like I don't know larping whatever you want to call it but like everyone fully commits to it so wait where, where were you Gary I played as a character called I played as a character called Gary Mitchell, and uh, I was uh, he was a little bit based on the Mitchell brothers, uh, Phil and Grant, and he was a he was a he was an East End gangster who uh, it got a little bit too a uh, little bit too spicy. He got a little bit hot uh, back in London. I had, to, I had to I had to get out of there until you know until it all blew over. I I'm, I might have screwed over a few of me uh, me colleagues and a few people back in London. Wouldn't be too happy to see Gary Mitchell. And so I thought I'd come over to Los Santos and, uh, you know, see what it's all about over here in California. Well, it's not California, is it? It's, uh, what do they call it? San Andreas. That's it. And so, um, yeah, I uh, I had a few adventures. And then I, uh, I created, I created a, uh, a talk show host called uh, Carson Longcock at a, a, a <laughs> short-lived uh, TV show called uh, Los Santos After Dark with Carson Longcock. So I, I, I had fun creating, like, different characters, and it's fun to do that kind of performative thing and kind of like you're telling a story you're coming up with a narrative it was something that i fell mm. very easily into and really really enjoyed doing and i really do ultimately think that's going to be the future whether it's whether it's in vr or not i do think that games are going to evolve more as as these virtual places where we just enjoy spending time and that may be structured curated with you know a scripted narrative or it may just be what people create and come up with on their own and again even without uh, the role-playing aspects. I just like Mass Effect Two is another good example. World of Warcraft is probably the other the best one. But I, I think about Los Santos as a game as like I've played, I've replayed it so many times. I never get tired of it. It's still, I think, one of the one of the greatest <clears throat> games in the modern era. Uh, its success obviously is is just absolutely staggering when you look at like how it's still popular. You know, ten years later and how many copies it sold and um gta 6 is probably my most anticipated yeah games i just can't wait to see what the next generation of that looks like but no this I, I remember i would stand on the corner you know los santos is like a fairly accurate facsimile of los angeles there are places that i like obviously very very heavily modeled on it i remember standing on uh the corner i was on i was on los santos's version of sunset boulevard at an intersection that is it's a real intersection in la and i remember where, where i've stood many times and I remember standing there, just looking around, going, "This is amazing! Like this is just like 
being there and that as that fidelity gets better and better as technology improves i think we're gonna we're gonna see that line blur all the more but i mean even with something as simple as you know playing back in the day playing it on the xbox 360 that sense of like being immersed in and traveling to another place and leaving the real world and all your troubles within it behind that to me is the promise of video games right? <laughs> the, same, the same as you know movies that take you to another place you go into a movie theater for two hours and the real world kind of melts away and disappears and you go to this you know galaxy far far away or whatever like i i think in video games that promise is is even more <laughs> vital because you know you are living in that world yourself you know you're not, you're not a passive observer you can go and do things and change that world um i just I, I, that to me is like kind of the ultimate long-term future of games and i think gta or games like that are a little glimpse of that promise i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So Gary, let's come back to your story. So you you're a, a schoolboy reviewing Amiga games for a Commodore magazine. At what point do you parlay that into a full time position on one of these mags? Yeah, I would I would literally do my GCSEs in the morning, and I would go into Commodore user in the afternoon and and uh, review video games. And as soon as I got out of school, I hated school. I was bullied. I had a terrible time. I didn't like school. I didn't want to go to college. I couldn't wait to get out. So as soon as I left school after my exams. They gave me a staff writer job, and you know, was, I can't remember what I was paid, very, very small amount of money, but I was doing what I wanted to do, and that led to uh, me eventually working on a bunch of other games, magazines that were under the same umbrella there, the, the, the old computer and video game CVG back in the day, a magazine called The One for 16-Bit Games, which covered Amiga, Atari ST, and PC games. Um, uh, there's an old magazine called Ace, Advanced Computer Entertainment. I, worked, I bounced around on a bunch of them, and then um, went to work as deputy editor of uh, PC Gamer when it was launched in late 1993 and very shortly after that the editor left and I uh, stepped up and became editor and I think at that time I was like the youngest editor of a national you know a major national magazine in the UK I was I, I would have been like 20 years old and I was I was wow. promoted to editor cool I mean yeah obviously that now PC Gamer is one of the largest game media outlets in the world still going yeah, yeah. like the 30th their 30 I actually had to write a little retrospective for their 30th anniversary oh, um, issue that's coming up. I got quite quite nostalgic uh, thinking about it. <laughs> what was it like then in 1993? What kind of, uh, what was the, yeah, what was just the vibe in the office and what were your responsibilities? I mean, it was, I, I, I remember it being very kind of loosey-goosey, very unprofessional. The Games Magazine was a bit of a Wild West 
uh the the back then the whole games industry was was it was all a little bit del boy back in the day just a little bit you know um it just it i don't know it just it was just kind of a mess um but it was it was glorious fun uh pc games in that era i still have there's a ton of nostalgia for pc games in the 90s because there were so many great games i i remember you know games coming on like 15 16 three and a half inch floppy disks you know and and then there's and then cd-rom came along shortly after that and it was it was a miracle to have a game just only on one disc but we had to kind of sort through uh the horror of of interactive movies and that whole thing where we didn't quite know what to do with the medium yet you know i, th- I think the pc i had on my desk was like a 486 dx and remember very very excited to get a pentium 90 when that first came in and thinking this is all very powerful i'm sitting now you can't see it but i'm, I'm sitting here next to my current pc which was recently uh, built for me by a company called RGB Custom PC that does these amazing custom builds. And it's like blinged out with all this RGB light. It, I mean, it looks like a time machine from the, you see what the, well, you know what gaming PCs look like today with these kind of like glowing rainbow colored sure. rigs. It looks like this amazing like glass aquarium with all this stuff inside of it. <laughs> yeah, back in the day when I was on, P, I was talking to my old hardware editor at PC Gamer the other day, like we were thinking about the kind of the beige boxes that we had as <laughs> yes. PCs back in the day. We were very excited when the first 3D effects uh, 3d accelerator cards go oh my god like a dedicated chip that just does graphics what a concept like it was completely new to us but like we could never have imagined i mean i'm looking at this 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 i've got a, a, a rtx 4090 in this rig right now and i'm looking at it, it's kind of glowing at me and it it looks like some it looks like an ai core from like a futuristic movie it looks like a futuristic spaceship or something like i could never have imagined that this is what pcs and pc gaming would would turn into i'm sure it would blow, blow it would have blown my mind back then to see like what pc games are now i still remember you may remember this is a famous cover of next generation magazine next generation was like the american version of edge and it was when the first unreal game came like, remember before there was like unreal tournament Unreal. it was yep. just unreal was the first yeah. game and it was a it was a screenshot from unreal that they had blown up full size for the cover and the headline was something like, yes, you can believe your eyes. This is a real <laughs> screenshot from an actual PC game. This is where graphics have, have how, how far they've evolved. You look at it now and it's a joke. You're like, seriously, come on. Like, that's terrible. But like back then we thought it was amazing. And I think about that all the time. And it makes me think like, what are, what are we like? What are we going to be playing another 30 years from now? And like, will the games that we think, you know, we look at like Alan Wake 2 and things like this right now that are like, will that look quaint to us? Oh my God, you believe we were ever impressed by that? I, I kind of have to believe that, yes, I think we will. I, I do believe in VR. I think it's, it's it been a very, very slow process to get there. But I do genuinely believe that in 20, 30 years, um, our children are going to be saying, wait, so let me get this right. When you played a game, it was just like it was just like on a like on, on like a two dimensional window, like a, like a picture in a frame. And the game was all inside of that. I was like, yeah, it's like, no, you gotta, I don't believe that you got to show it to me because like the, the, the experience is going to be. The, the games that my kids are going to be playing in 20, 30 years are going to be absolutely just a, a different, uh, on a different level altogether. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. But I'm also very nostalgic for the old days of uh, PC gaming in the 90s. And I think there's a big reason why there's a, there's still like a very, very popular kind of retro scene based around like the the, the old days of, of 90s PC games. Because again, even though they haven't aged terribly well, there were some real bangers back in the day. You know, I was playing command and conquer and starcraft and just having the the best you know the original dooms and quakes and just having the best time with those games half-life my god i mean the 90s was amazing yeah yeah well counter-strike was you know played you know for 20 years with without dropping that many people was it so yeah right absolutely i think team fortress 2 just recorded its highest play, highest player count ever how old is that game it's ridiculous yeah 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 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think, you know, you, yes, you're right. The you know graphics continue to improve exponentially. But I wonder, young people seem you know, less bothered than in the 90s. It was all about, you know, graphical leaps forward, wasn't it? But now, nowadays, kids just don't seem so fussed about that. They'll play Minecraft, they'll play Roblox and sort of, you know, in inverted commas, ugly games without without too much fuss. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about this all the time when we talk about like 1080p and 4K and 60 frames a second and versus 30 frames. And I have to remember sometimes that we live in a little bit of a bubble where, you know, we're like hardcore gaming enthusiasts, right? Like we're like in the absolute kind of top 1% of people who like really care about like marginal gains and DLSS and ray tracing versus path training. Like those kind of hardcore enthusiasts, every fandom has that, right? Whether it's people that are into like cars or uh, movies or whatever, you know, like AV enthusiasts or like their their screen's got to be set up and calibrated a certain way. Most people aren't like that. Most people don't care. It's why the Xbox Series S is such a popular machine because I was often, often say that I think the Xbox Series S is the best games console for most people because most people don't give a shit about 4k versus 1080p or 30 frames versus 60 that's that's an enthusiast argument and the fact that the switch is still so incredibly popular even though it's you know vastly less powerful than the other consoles on the market is again because it's good enough for most people you the the, the nintendo switch has lots of really really great games Mm, uh, and you can carry it around with you and it's good it's more than good enough for like most people yeah yeah. um and i think we often forget that in this business when i'm talking to other game developers or games journalists or just people that are like really kind of live and breathe games that we're 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 having conversations that i think are often quite different to like the the ones that are being had by like 90 percent of gamers who just want a machine that's good enough to play fifa or madden or minecraft or whatever fortnite you know Yes, indeed. Right, well, let's come to your third game, Gary. So this is from 2020, Japanese game. Tell us about this one. So I picked, I guess it was called, yeah, at the time it would have been called like Yakuza 7, Like a Dragon. They've kind of since renamed the whole franchise now. It's, it's all just kind of like a dragon. It's become, become quite confusing. I fell in love with this game. I'd never really played a Yakuza game before. I was, I constantly was like, I, I would see clips like, oh my God, these games are insane, right? Because they are insane in a way that no Western game ever is. Like there's, there is something about like certain Japanese game studios that will just do stuff completely off the wall in the most delightful way. And I was always kind of curious about the Yakuza series. And then I don't know, for whatever reason, Like a Dragon was, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And it's a different protagonist than the previous Yakuza games. It's a real departure from the previous Yakuza games, which are kind of a brawler. And it's all, you know, um, uh, Kiryu Kazuma, uh, Kazuma and it's he's the he's the lead character through all those games. And they're 3D brawlers, basically. This is much more uh, like a dragon was a real departure. Now it's a turn-based RPG and it's um, a, a different protagonist, a guy, a, a guy by the name of um, Ichiban Kasuga, who I just fell in love with instantly. I'm a big story guy. I, you know, I've done story development work in video games. And so, like, a game has to capture me and the story has to be interesting and i have to give a shit about the character same as if i'm watching a movie or a television show all the all the same rules of like storytelling apply right show me a character that i care about 
and want to see you succeed and can tell me an interesting story. And Ichiban is just like the whole move, the, the, the whole game is really, I mean, it's like a big Japanese crime saga, sure. But what it's really about is, is the power of friendship and how, um, how important it is to have friends in your life and people that you would do anything for. And it's just this really sweet story. It's funny. Um, it's, it's wild. And the fictional place, Kamurocho, which is not a real place in Japan, but it's like the place where all the Yakuza games are set again, feels like it's like the Japanese Los Santos to me. It's a place where you can go and feel like you've been transported into this other reality where the rules are very different. And it's just such a fun game. And I love that character. I can't wait for the for the new one, Infinite Wealth. It's probably my most anticipated, anticipated game in the short term. They're funny. They're, they're poignant. They're silly. There's, you can play. There's so much to do. There's like a whole business mini game inside of it that I got hooked on. I just, oh my God, I just found out that the new one has like a whole animal crossing type game built into it. i just I, i'm gonna have to tell my wife like you're not gonna see me for a while because i just love them i played it to death i went back and did what's called the true final millennium tower which is the hardest challenge in the game and when i finally beat it it's like the only time i've literally like jumped off on my couch and like <laughs> done like a triumphant yes i beat the game and i got like the the the, the, the final you know, achievement and it's just such a fun game it's one of those games there's a couple of games that i picked here that i really just kind of picked them because i just wanted to highlight them a little bit like i don't it's like you know when like you play a game or you watch a movie or a tv show that is so good you just want to tell everybody about it and like yeah. oh you've got to see this thing uh, like a dragon is was one of those games for me i just loved it so much it, i had that feeling like when it was finally over and i had completed every activity and side quest and there was just nothing left to do than like wander around i felt genuinely sad it felt like that moment when you like close the last page on a, on a book that you've been loving and it's like oh no like yeah there's this kind of sense of sadness like it's over Yes. And you wish you could go back and like read it again for the first time. That's kind of how I felt with with Like a Dragon. It's just an endlessly, endlessly fun and delightful game. And I'm so I was like, please make a sequel to this game. So I'm so glad that they are. Uh, and I will eventually go back and play all the all the other Yakuza games. But the um, it was really the character of Ichiban. I said it before. I think Ichiban Kasuga is the best protagonist in video games in like the last 10 years i just love well, him to death he's, he becomes like a person that you know and he's like the he's like the guy that you wish was your best friend in real life because he'll do anything like if he's your friend they like, will do anything for you and he's a he's a like a, a criminal he's like theoretically a bad guy but he's like he's a classic kind of gangster with a heart of gold and it's just all the other supporting characters are so fun it's there's just endlessly like there's never not there's, there's never not something to do in that game. <laughs> it's very much like GTA. Like, you don't want to do the main quest. Well, here's a million other little fun you know activities and things you can go get lost in. And I have very severe ADHD, and it's 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 I never like will do one thing at a time. Like I've been playing Starfield. I've got like fifteen different jobs in Starfield because I can't <laughs> pick just one. I'm constantly getting distracted by like the the shiny object. And so games like that that are constantly offering the opportunity to like do you know, do whatever you want. Those games are perfect for someone like me that is constantly, you know, I got a fight. My mother used to call me a five minute wonder. Like I've got a very short kind of goldfish right. attention span. Uh, so ga games like Grand Theft Auto and and Like a Dragon, where you do feel like you can, you, the game can be anything you want it to be. Those, I, that, and that's why I put it on the console because I because I, I, I feel like even again, even when the game is like quote unquote finished, it's still fun just to wander around and play the mini games and again just inhabit right. that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, indeed. Right, so Gary, you, you moved to 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 the US in 1996 to launch PC Gamer. That's that's something that doesn't happen very often. I mean, you mentioned Next Generation was the US version of Edge, but what was it like trying to launch the 
a USPC gamer. What what was the mission that you were given specifically? So um, yeah, I was I had edited PC Gamer in the UK for a couple of years and it had become very successful. And the company that published it started basically a US operation where they were publishing US versions of those titles. So PC Gamer begat PC Gamer US and Edge begat Next Generation. And I think there were some others that that came over. And they had actually already launched it. They'd already done a few issues of it. And I think, I guess they weren't happy with what it was editorially. And they wanted it to be more like the UK version, which, was, right. which it was modeled on. And so they thought, well, let's bring out someone from the UK. So they brought me out to run it for a while with this mandate of like, kind of bring it more in like, what, you know, what the things that were liked about the UK version, they wanted to make sure that they were in the US version as well. And I was seen as the person to do that since I was the person, again, partly responsible for why pe people like the, the British PC game. And originally it was just meant to be a year. Like I was supposed to come in there for a year and like help kind of get the magazine in line with what they wanted it to be. And I would come back a year later with, you know, lots of story about stories about living in America. But uh, I kind of fell in, I fell in love with the uh, San Francisco Bay area. I still live there today um, and didn't want to leave. And, you know, my, they extended my visa and eventually got a green card and then my citizenship. And uh, yeah, now I'm a naturalized American citizen. And I, I love my life. I have a wife and kids here. My, you know, my life is here now. Like I said, lived in America for longer than I lived in the UK, which is a, a weird realization when that when that day came. But no, originally it was it was it was very much like running a bit of a culture clash. Uh, again, a kind of mouthy mouthy Brit coming over to kind of tell these Americans what to do was not necessarily appreciated by everybody. I had to kind of learn to modulate or regulate my my behavior a little bit. I, I remember getting called into my boss's office to be to have a a very polite lecture about how the C word has a very different connotation. Even though we fling, fling it around in the UK like like it, like it's nothing, in the US it's taken much more seriously. So like you might want to read you know, that, that that word's a little bit more uh, 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 nuclear powered here. You might want to be careful with how you deploy it. <laughs> Maybe not on the front cover. Yeah, right. And <laughs> you know, it, it's there's a there's a lot of little weird culture. And I think now now I've gone completely. Over to the other side, I, I use all the American pronunciations of the words. I say tomato, like I'm completely like I've completely sold out to the other side. But you know, it took a, it it took a long time for that to to happen. And the first couple of years um, were definitely rough because I was still very much kind of the East End Barrow boy uh, that was like trying to trying to tell these Americans what to know. It's very opinionated and very I don't know, just like an annoying Brit. Yeah, uh, but they they eventually warmed up to me. Sounds like your GTA uh, role play character. There. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, it's funny. So you you're uh, you were at PC Gamer or Future US or whatever the company was called at that time. It was called Imagine. So Future Future it was called Imagine Media. Right, Imagine Media. Okay, and that, that was Chris Anderson who started um, Future. Also started Imagine, and now of course Chris is known as the guy that runs uh, TED Talks. That's what he's best right. known for. He's become very successful with that. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. Okay, and then, but you're there when the sort of dot com bubble bursts oh, yeah. around 2000, I guess, and that's 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 sort of how you end up getting into Hollywood. Tell us, tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I, when I talk about like luck and happenstance and being in the right place at the right time, I was very happy at PC Gamer. I was basically doing what I dreamed of doing when I was a kid. I remember as a kid, I wanted to either I wanted I knew I wanted to work in either video games or movies because those are my my two loves i used to play video games and watch movies in, in, in obsessively I, I want a career in one of these two businesses yes. and i got the career in games and ended up being very successful you know pc gamer in the late 90s when i was working there in the u.s was 
the biggest selling games magazine in the world. It was huge. We had like four, five hundred page issues. Why? Like back in the back in the kind of the, the halcyon days of print. Yeah, right. Long long gone now. But uh it was it was it was crazy days back then and PC game was extraordinarily successful and all the game publishers were fighting over, you know, the front cover every month because it was highly valued. And it was nice to work on something that was that was that successful. And like I said, the dot com boom happened. And my company started a magazine called Business 2.0, which was about, you know, how to make money on the internet. And that became spectacularly successful off the back of the dot-com boom. This was around 99, 2000. And uh, the company like massively expanded and launched a lot of other magazines based on the success of Business 2.0. But then when the dot-com crash happened about a year later, remember it was very quick, it, it, it kind of exploded very, very fast. Um, the kind of the bottom fell out from the the company, like all of the all of the money that Business 2.0 had been making that was supporting all these other ventures, like it all collapsed at once, and a lot of people got laid off, and I got laid off, and I don't think I ever would have had the courage. I mean, I, I might still be editor of PC Gamer today, just sitting there, kind of being very lazy, thinking like, why do anything else? I like doing this, uh, but I didn't get I didn't make I didn't get to make that choice. The choice was kind of made for me. I I got laid off, and I remember thinking, well, look, I I've got a very good resume in games at this point i could you know this was also there was another transition happening around the same time which was print magazines were starting to go away and websites were coming out i remember sure. the launch of ign back when it was imagine games network <laughs> and so i kind of potted around where i did a little bit of work on ign after i was laid off from pc gamer but i remember thinking like there's an inflection point here and it's an opportunity to kind of like look at this from the outside and think what do i really want to do I could easily have gotten another job in games based on you know the work i'd done prior to that point but i thought no let's try something different like, let's see. Let's see. Um, and I had enough money saved up to live very frugally for about a year. Um, and I'm thinking, well, I live in California now. Like, you know, Hollywood doesn't seem, when in the UK, it never seemed realistic. It's so far away. But now I'm like, my, I'm, I'm basically, you know, rather than 6,000 miles away, I'm like 400 miles away. Like, maybe I could do this. Let's see. I had like a year. And so I wrote a bunch of screenplays. Just kind of each one slightly less terrible than the last. Like, I'm very autodidactic. I don't learn from read i never read any like how to write a screenplay type books i just don't process information that way i just kind of yes. read a bunch of screenplays and tried to emulate the things about them that i thought worked and you know learned a lot by failure and mistake and eventually wrote something that i thought was good enough to show to somebody and that got me my first manager who's still my manager my, my manager today and that's that was the kind of the beginning of the transition the end of like my full times my full-time games career although i'm still very active in the games world and podcast and you know do uh, a lot of a lot of games stuff because i still love video games but um, i've been uh, a screenwriter now for longer than i was in video i was in, i was in video games for a better part of 15 years and i've been a screenwriter now for more than 20 incredible right gary let's come to your, your fourth game this is from july 2021 so we're quite recent now tell us about this one i'm hoping that there's an internet connection on my fictional desert island that i can play you know multiplayer games and receive updates and things like that because um fall guys obviously is a multiplayer game that requ you know you, you there's, there's no single player version of it I just had so much fun with it. It was very much one of those games of the pandemic, like Animal Crossing, you know, where everyone was miserable and we were looking for something fun. We were looking for an escape. Animal Crossing really provided that. And I think Fall Guys 
did as well because it was just fun and colorful and it reminded me very much of uh, it's a knockout which i grew up with as a as a kid and um you know the people in america i think in, in america you're they're more familiar with like takeshi's castle as the same kind of ridiculous you know obstacle courses and it's very very funny and i just love it i love colorful beans and it was there's no I, I, as i get older like i become more i don't know i've got kids now and i want to play games that i can play with my kids and i'm not necessarily interested in like the dude bro super violent shooters and things like that i just i like mario and i like color i like and i like fall guys and i like color and like animal crossing i like things that can play with play with the family yeah and fall guys was just i was really 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 hooked on it for a while and i love the fact that they've that they've continued to iterate on it and there's always something new to, to discover uh you'll be bored with these levels well here's a new season with a whole bunch of new maps like so i get on my desert island there's always going to be some kind of refresh or something to keep me interested i know it irritates a lot of people it's just i think just one of those brilliant games where you can play really really well um but still get screwed over by just some like ridiculous like random fact so that to me is what what makes it fun um it was you know it was really really popular on twitch for a while there because like games that make streamers yes. rage tend to be very very popular so right. up was very successful because of that quite recently as well um but i just I had a blast playing it with with my friends and i had the best time and like it's, again it's one of those games that te- it's in that same category as tetris like i've got a half an hour to kill i kind of feel like playing a video game but i don't have time to get sucked into anything like major what would i just pick up and play for half an hour i'll do I'll, you know four guys it's it, you can always come back to it yeah, it's a classic, isn't it? Absolute classic, and seemingly came out of nowhere and took over the world overnight. It was brilliant, wasn't it? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's just come come back to your story then. So you you get a manager before before you got an agent, I understand. And there's a good story about how this came about to do with the which pile your spec script was put on. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. Oh, I was yeah. It, again, this is one. I, again, it, we, we keep coming back to this this subject of luck. I, I when I was a kid, they used to say it's better to be lucky than good. I think you need to be both, but you you certainly need to be the first one. If you can be as good as you want, but if you're not, if you don't have that, if you're not in the right place at the right time, uh, it may never happen for you. There's lots of incredibly talented people out there that will never be discovered just because again they weren't there on the right day. But I was, and and more so. What happened was so I wrote this script. Uh, it was the it was the one I mentioned earlier that I thought was good enough to show people. It was called Oliver. It was this weird kind of post apocalyptic steampunk re reimagining of the Oliver Twist story. Uh, that kind of reimagined him as like a genetically engineered superhero, which sounds very ridiculous, but it's actually a lot of fun and very cool. And I sent it off to these different uh, managers to look at. It's very hard to get in the door at in Hollywood. Like you can't just send your script to like CAA or UTA. They'll send it back to you unopened. They don't accept what are known in the business unsolicited queries about but some hollywood managed talent managers who are more hands-on with your career they will um and they have a you know an, a, an email or a, a, a mailing address and i literally would print out scripts and send them like no one does that anymore it's all pdfs now but i had my my, my paper scripts that i sent out to various uh, places and the phone rang one sunday afternoon and it was this manager that i had sent one of these scripts to and he said i'm not quite sure like why i even have this script but i'm I'm only halfway through but i already know that i want to represent you because i think your writing's really good and we found out later what happened was so this is the head of this, this is the guy that head that is the head of the company like the founder of the company the top guy and usually what happens is whether it be an agency or a producer or a studio or whatever the top people don't read scripts unless they've already been through like a phalanx of, of readers who kind of sort out the good from the bad you know there's a whole job category in hollywood are literally just called readers and their job is just to read scripts and sort through them and they'll provide what's called coverage which is like a small like a a few pages that will summarize the story and then their critique of the script like 
is any good where you know where, where it might need work or what it's what its pros and cons are and then at the end there'll be a recommendation pass consider or recommend and like most scripts are passes consider is usually as good as you get you almost never get a recommend <laughs> and then you know those go through different readers and like by the time they're thinned out to like the the the, the, the top considers and recommends that's when you know the, the real decision makers will read <laughs> the scripts obviously they, they don't have time to read everything including there's just a lot of bad scripts out there and the way it works at this company at this management company was every my manager would would take home that select pile of scripts to read at the weekend you know to see you know who we might be interested in in representing and, and again all of the all of the chaffs already been sorted out like <laughs> readers have already kind of sorted out the bad ones and given them the like the handful that they think are worthy of his consideration but what happened was somebody literally apparently put my scripts in the wrong pile and without reading it, they ju it just got put in my manager's weekend read pile by mistake. And he was confused because usually the, the scripts have the coverage, like staples at the front, right? Here's the summary of the story. Here's the critique. Here's the recommendation at the end. And this one didn't have that. It's like it doesn't have the coverage. It's just the script. So he started reading it anyway and got really into it and really liked it. But I mean, that literally was like just a happy, like the, like the happiest of accidents. Because it, again, in another, in, in another reality, uh, in that same reality where I, you know, buy the Atari ST versus the Amiga, <laughs> here we go again with another sliding doors. If that, if let's say a reader does read it and it's just not to their taste and they go, ah, I'm going to put this, in, I'm, I'm not going to put this in my boss's pile. I don't like it. Again, I don't know what I'm doing now, but you know, it was, it was just a, a just a happy, a happy fluke. So again, lucky and good, right? Lucky to get in the pile, but then good that it was still good enough that once you read it, it was, it wasn't like a shit script got accidentally put in the pile it was actually a pretty decent one so yeah a, combi a combination of luck and 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 hard work i guess exactly yeah cool wonderful but mostly luck let's <laughs> let's, let's be honest about it <laughs> right gary we better you've been super generous with your time so we better come to your last uh, your last game choice here this is from september 2021 tell us about this one so the Awful Escape is another game that I really just kind of, I don't know if it's a game that I would play endlessly on my, on my desert island, but I just wanted, I just, I'll, I'll, I'll take any opportunity to talk about it. See a blonde haired boy, he be playing in the fields, and his daddy lifts him up on his steering wheel. Says one day, son, this law be yours, and the banks of the rivers are lined in gold, and the sweet rose of pines lost in your wind. Run, baby, run, baby, far from home. The banks of the river, they are lined in gold. Because it's such an amazing game. I think, I don't know if you played it yourself. But I did, yeah. I was very, I thought it was very, very underrated. And I, again, I love games that tell a story. I love games that, that dare to do something different. And, you know, it, there's very little to it as a video mm. game. Like, it really is just kind of a pattern matching game. You're basically playing Simon, right? It's like X, A, B, B, Y, just match the, the, the musical patterns. That's really all there is to it as a game. But, uh, yeah, that, but that's the, the delivery mechanism for this amazing 
wild and wacky story that I just thought was so original and so much fun and it's so beautiful aesthetically. Essentially it's this weird story of like you're the you're the nephew of this legendary Bob Dylan, clearly modeled on, on Bob Dylan style folk singer who had this like legendary album like back in the 60s and you're this kid's nephew and you've grown up with all this expectation that you will follow in his footsteps right and be the next big folk artist and every and he, the kid's musically inclined but everyone's pushing him to like be like his dad be like his uncle and and to write you know bob dylan style folk uh tunes but that's not what he wants to do he wants to write like big sci-fi rock operas like prog isn't it yeah like the who or something or like just like he, he wants to write tommy in space like and it's this completely different thing that he wants to do and he ends up going on this wild hitchhiker's guide style space adventure but again what it really boils down to again like all, all great stories i think boil down no matter how like wild and uh, adventurous and 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 science and fantastical they may be like in, in terms of the storytelling like you go all around the galaxy and meet all these amazing uh civilizations and creatures and planets and weird people but what it comes down to is this simple kind of relatable thing which is like don't let anyone tell you who you're supposed to yeah. be right just yeah, it's, it's very very simple like basic piece of kind of philosophy like decide for yourself who you are um and you know it, just because your your father or your uncle or whatever did this thing and there's an expectation that you'll follow in their footsteps doesn't mean you have to do that you can't you can decide for yourself yeah. and you can chart your own destiny and be true basically just be true to yourself be true to your own identity don't try to please other people um you can only you can only ever do that if you first uh, please yourself and like follow your muse and do what you're passionate about and that i thought it was a really important message the music and the, there is there are some moments in that game even just when you're just pressing the you know the simon buttons xbay where you're creating these like epic kind of rock melodies yes. and like and just hitting this air guitar you know what i'm talking about like there are these moments like i kind of wish that i'd have played it stoned because i think i would have enjoyed it all the more there's like transcendent moments isn't it I mean, like transcendence in exact moment there are there are moments i remember like you get that chill like this i'm like this is just a truly great moment in gaming like it's it's a real it's a real thing to have that moment when you're like in the moment you're thinking this is like one of this is this is i'm going to remember this moment forever <laughs> like i remember literally sitting on standing on top of this mountaintop um hitting this guitar and like giant like space whales were kind of floating behind me it is like this weird kind of like psychedelic like pink floyd in space yeah, it's got like a david bowie feel hasn't it like Z ziggy star stardust type thing yeah it's got it's got, yeah it's it's all all of that and it's and and again hitchhiker's guide and like like it mashes up all of my favorite things and there are, there are these moments of like like you said just sublime transcendent musical it is a right is essentially a, a rock opera right in in an interactive form and it's just beautiful and i love it uh, and I want I want to go back. It's been long enough that I want to go back and just like play it again. Like it's one of those games. It's not particularly long. Turn the lights down. Get on. Put a good. Uh, you know. Turn your phone off. Put on a good pair of headphones and just experience that game. And like I remember turning it on to a lot of people who came back to me and said, "Thank you so much for recommending that game because you're right. It's awesome. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's another another game published by Annapurna. Uh, interactive which <laughs> i know what an amazing amazing work that they that they've done and you know they identify i think take risks on much like an independent film right they'll take risks on things that that um that you know the big the big publishers and the big studios uh will not it's good I mean, how do you even pitch the art what does the pitch for the artful escape look like it's so weird but they did an amazing job with it i, I have the soundtrack on my on my phone i listen to it in the car uh all the time the music is genuinely uh, amazing incredible voice cast 
super super trippy it really does feel like a kind of a combination of like the who um hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and just like the best like space rock music you've you've ever heard and even the opening song which is like they did they basically created like a it's the song that your your uncle in the game is what most well known for it's got a song called the banks of the river aligned with gold and it's like yes you would believe that it was like a lost bob dylan track they did just such an amazing uh job with it and the soundtrack of the game is is just incredible and i i, I talk about it endlessly as you can tell i'm doing it right now and i i very much look forward to going back and, and playing it again i love wonderful it. Right, Gary, let's go through your console. So we've got Tetris, GTA 5, Yakuza Like a Dragon, Fall Guys, and The Artful Escape. Something for every mood there. Yeah, and it's like it's, it's funny, like I said to you before we started recording, when I looked at the, I gave you that that list like a couple of weeks ago, right, at least, and I remember going back and looking at it, looking at it this morning, going, oh, I don't know, I would probably swap a couple of these out, right? And that's why I usually don't do lists like top, five all time this or that because it's constantly moving like you, yeah you, you you pick your five and then someone says well, what about this you go oh sure, no that yeah that should be in there um you're always you're always changing but for but I, i'm i'm happy with the five that i picked i'm really you know not not nobody needs to be told about tetris or gta 5 but like I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to um if like if just one person out there listens to this and goes play goes and plays you know like a dragon or awful escape and goes oh yeah this i'm really glad i heard about this game then i i this would have been worth it for me it's, it's those games that make you like you said that are so good you like you want to proselytize them yeah 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 we need a uh, a name for your console to market to the world have you got an idea for what we could call it oh god i i, I, had, no, I had no idea um it's funny isn't it like console names over the years i remember when the dreamcast first came out I remember thinking, like, remember somebody said to me, it sounds like a mattress. It's like, <laughs> it's hard. It's like, oh, yeah, gotta, it's, it's not, it's hard to name, it's hard to name things, right? I mean, Don't come at the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast has done nothing wrong, Gary. You can't come at the. <laughs> I, well, I, I, and I, listen to me, I will die on that hill. I think the Dreamcast is the most, the, 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 the so, such an underrated machine. Yeah, it is. I yeah. loved that machine. And I, I don't think, I, I don't think you'll ever get like fully. The, the the respect it deserves it was it was before its time and oh my god the number of hours i spent playing crazy taxi on that thing um but yeah very odd name um maybe i mean maybe the name maybe if it'd be called something better it wouldn't have been it, it, it would have had more success or it would have had a better chance of success at least i don't know you put me on the spot what should i call it um i'm gonna call it the fun box <laughs> does what it says on the tin because I have no imagination and I'm no good when I'm put on the spot. As soon as soon as, as soon as we hang up here, I'm going to come up with something ten times better. And I say, "Oh, can I send you an audio clip of me saying something better?" But for right now, it, of course you can. It's the fun box. Of course box. you can. Right. Just before I let you go, Gary, one last question. Um, this is quite practical and maybe a bit obvious, but I think it's still worthwhile asking. Let's assume that one of the listeners has written a spec script that they think is good enough to sell. What should they do? Oh my goodness! You know, I get that question a lot, sure. and I never have a good answer for people because, first of all, the way that I did it, I don't think is replicable. Because a, because I did it so long ago, I think the way that you would do it, like the way that I did it, just wouldn't work now. Oh, yeah. So I wouldn't even like tell you that specific story. It's different for everyone, and there are so many ways in. First of all, I would say you've, you, know, just, you, some sense, just written that spec script. So first thing I would say is like make sure it's as good as as it can be. Like never be satisfied with the first draft i always tell people like you know there's always a sense of post-coital afterglow after you finish a, a script you're very pleased with yourself you wrote this thing you finished it congratulations right most people don't finish the script so you can't do anything unless you finish it 
um, put it in a drawer and walk away, forget about it for six weeks yep. and then come back. Because whatever, I know this is true of like books or whatever else, but like you're all, you're very enamored with your own work when you've just finished it, right? And you're very pleased with yourself. And it might be hard for you to kind of look at it objectively. Give it like, give it a good six weeks, come back and you'll, you'll have a little bit more distance from it. You'll never be able to look at it completely objectively, but you'll, you'll get a better sense of like what, you know, is, or isn't, isn't working. Find some trusted readers, like people that will actually tell you what they think. No, they won't just say, oh, it's great, you know, because they, they want to, they want to, you know, be, be nice, get some, get some honest feedback. And then in terms of like actual exposure to the industry, it's really, again, I genuinely don't know how people do it. There are competitions uh, you can enter. Some people start, you know, here in the US, they'll start by getting an assistance job in a TV writer's room. And many of, you know, that, that being an assistant in a writer's room is often a career path to becoming a staff writer and then, you know, moving up. Like some of the biggest names in in TV started as assistants in other people's writer's rooms. There's there's various different ways. In film, it is, it is tricky, right? You've got, you've got to find someone who will notice your script. And again, the way in which you might do it now would probably be different but i would say the one the one thing that i did that you maybe still do is again don't bother don't bother with the agencies like uta ceas wmes of the world will not read your scripts but there are management companies out there um that are always looking for the next writer and some of them will accept again what are called unsolicited queries and they're looking you know people that, that they will read your scripts even though you are a nobody there are other or there are sites like the blacklist where you can you know um submit your scripts and get feedback from other writers and one thing i will say that's much better than when i was first starting when the internet was still very nascent and there wasn't much of a screenwriter community is that a because i always say to people don't read screenwriting books read scripts like read like think of your 10 favorite movies and go get the scripts and the great thing is you can do that like i had to like scrounge up like paper copies of scripts where i don't even know where i got them from back in the day now you can just type in the name of your favorite movie and add pdf and you will have the screenplay in like five seconds incredible yeah for pretty much any movie you can name and so it's so much easier to study the scripts like pick like your five favorite movies of the last 20 years and go read the scripts and see how they were written on the page because there is a very particular rhythm and cadence to screenplays and the way in which they're written is a, there's a it's a very particular sub language of writing uh, that you have to become familiar with and then I would say use the community, like whether it be social media or sites like the blacklist. There is so or you should listen to like the the the, the script notes podcast. There's just so much more in the way of resources and community and way to get read and way to get useful feedback and ways to kind of like start making connections now than there were when I was starting. There was a couple of like you know uh, message boards, but nothing like there is now. And I think that's. Most most writers are doing. I don't think anyone's like stuffing scripts in envelopes anymore. That's long gone. That's what I did. Uh, but now I think there's there's a million different ways to to uh, do it. But it's different for everyone. There's no one. I I could if I think of like ten friends of mine who are screenwriters and all successful. And I asked each of them, "How did you get started?" They'll all have a completely different story. Yeah. Right. Indeed. Yeah, it's the same for pretty much every field of writing these days. I think <laughs> you know, there's no yeah yeah no one story for sure. And then the other thing is that I'll mention. I think this is more true if you're writing a book or if you want to be a film director is you can just bypass gatekeepers now you know in the world of self-publishing uh you know the martian um you know wool uh 50 shades of gray they were all self-published and you know we live in a in a world now where you are walking around with a fully functioning film production studio in your pocket like you know you can you can shoot amazing movies on an iphone soderbergh shoots movies 
on an iPhone now. And if you just learn the basics of how to kind of light and compose shots and things like that, just go and make your own thing. Like, and get it on YouTube. And again, there are many, many examples of like, like the kid that made the back rooms, right? Now he's directing the feature film version of that. What is he, like 17 years old? So just, just don't feel that you need... This is like the most holistic piece of, of advice I'll give. Don't feel like you need to ask for anyone else's money or permission to create something. Just go and do it. And that's been true, like, you know, whether it be Robert Rodriguez or Kevin Smith or even Spielberg, you know, who just obsessively would make Super 8 films in his backyard and got kicked off the Universal lot, um, you know, as a kid many times. Now he practically owns it. Yes. You know, it's, it's just just do it. Don't wait for anyone's permission to do something. You can, we had the tools to, to both make things and then get them in front of an audience are amazing compared to what i had when i was starting out and i think that that's a, that's a great advantage for people of this generation to you know get their stuff out there and get noticed mm. gary thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your experience and wisdom with us i really appreciate it thank you thank you i enjoyed it immensely Thank you so much to my guest, Gary Witter. And without further ado, let me say welcome back to year two of My Perfect Console. It's wonderful to have you, wonderful to be back. If you are a long-term listener, then uh, then hey, Happy New Year and all that stuff. If it's the first time you've listened, welcome, you're in for a treat. Go back, listen to the, the back catalogue. We've had some amazing guests over the last 12 months and some conversations that I think are well worth your time. So yeah, enjoy diving into that and join us for the journey in 2024. Uh, Gary, yes, wasn't that wasn't that lovely to hear from from Gary from a screenwriter working away right there in the middle of Hollywood on films, on TV, on video games, all of that stuff. And of course, his previous life as a video game, I feel like journalist is uh, too small a word really for what he was doing pioneer maybe <laughs> heading out from uh, from bath in somerset all the way across the sea to uh, to san francisco to the bay area to launch pc gamer of course one of the largest um outlets that covers video games in the world today it was just great to hear all of that i'm sure those days were uh, have long those days have long disappeared and anyone listening i know we have listeners from pc gamer hello uh, i'm sure the world is very different these days but it's nice to hear a snapshot of what it was like back in the 90s a eh? gary has already had quite a busy start to 2024 um you may have you may have been able to tell that we recorded that conversation at the tail end of 2023 because he was of course referencing the writer's strike and things like that but uh yeah, his 2024 has already been quite busy. He's announced a Book of Eli prequel series. Uh, so that's, of course, a prequel to his movie that came out starring Denzel Washington. And it's got John Boyega, who is playing the younger version of Denzel's character in the film Book of Eli. So John Boyega, of course, who you'll know from Star Wars. And uh, Gary's deeply involved as creator, writer and executive producer on that. So congratulations to to Gary. And um, yes, great to great to see that that it looks like it's coming to fruition and coming to screens and all of that kind of thing. Good job to Podcast Matters. If you would like to to write to me, you can do so at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. 
please do that. It would be lovely to hear from you. Lots of you write, lots of you suggest guests. That is very helpful. In fact, many of the guests that I had last year and many of the guests that we've got coming up this year are people that you, the listeners, have suggested to me that I've then been able to go and approach. Uh, some people, you know, that I'm not aware that they're into video games, some people in the public eye, and it's been helpful to hear from you and hear those suggestions. And some of those are coming up. Uh, I don't always get back to, to everyone. I do try to, but I certainly do read every email. So please do drop us a line if you can. If you want to get more involved in the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. Uh, you get to be part of the community there. You get your episodes early. You get them ad free. You'll also have the chance to ask certain guests your own listener questions. So I harvest those on patreon.com and ask the uh, the guests those questions and then put out those responses as special episodes just for the supporters. So if that all sounds good to you, hop along to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and sign up. It's a modest fee every month and it just helps, uh, you know, helps keep the lights on and all that stuff. Um, right, yeah, really excited about some of the guests that I've got to share with you. In the first quarter of 2024, recorded loads of episodes, some very unexpected guests. <laughs> I recorded one last night. It did not go how I was expecting to, um, in a good way, and I cannot wait to share that with you. That's going to be interesting to see what the response is, but anyway... Uh, yeah, we have some really wonderful guests this month uh, throughout February. Next week, next week, it is Ian Lee. If you're from the UK, you'll certainly know who Ian Lee is. TV presenter, comedian. He was in the jungle in um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, Series 17, something like that, came third. Uh, he's had a very, very interesting life. He now works as a professional counsellor alongside running some popular podcasts, including one about 8-bit video games that he recently launched that's uh, been been doing really well. So, uh, yeah, I really, really like Ian and we had a fantastic chat and he is He's one of those people who just puts it all on the table and is not afraid to just tell you where he's been and what he's been up to and the things that uh, the high points and the low points. And uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy that episode. Um, so, yeah, I'll be back then next week with Ian, with a conversation with Ian, with his five games and with one more perfect console, the second perfect console of the new year of the new season. Until then, have a great week.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 